The Gonzaga Bulldogs added an exhibition game against Rick Barnes's Tennessee Volunteers on October 28th. An outstanding prep for the rigorous non-conference slate. More on the game and why it's a homecoming of sorts for Drew Timmy right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Don't go away. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to bring you news and updates on all things Zag athletics. Today's episode is brought to you by Underdog. Sign up on underdogfantasy.com with the promo code Locked On and get your first deposit doubled of up to $100. All right, happy Friday or happy weekend or happy whenever you are listening to this podcast. The biggest news of the day as we turn the calendar into October is that the Zags and the Tennessee Volunteers, Rick Barnes's squad, are going to play an exhibition game in Frisco, Texas on October 28th. That was announced on Friday morning. This is a really exciting game. Obviously, Gonzaga has played exhibition games in the past, and they have played high-profile programs during these exhibition games previously, although it's been a while since we've seen that. We saw last year the Zags played two exhibition games. They played Lewis-Clark State. They played Eastern Oregon. It was the first time in a long time we'd seen them play two exhibition games. There was a bit of controversy surrounding that. It allowed the Zags to suspend Mark Few for three games for his DUI and still have him back in time for the Texas game. We don't need to rehash all of that too much, but the point stands that Gonzaga is playing an exhibition game again this year. And instead of playing Eastern Oregon, instead of playing Lewis Clark State, not that there's anything wrong with giving those programs and those athletes an opportunity to compete against the very best it's also fun to see them get a chance to, to play somebody really, really good. Tennessee won the SEC last year. The same SEC with John Calipari's Kentucky Wildcats. The same SEC with Auburn, who was number one for a previous time last year. Tennessee won. This is a very, very good team. They went 27-8 and eight last year. They finished ninth in the Ken Palm ratings by the end of the overall season. Of course, their roster looks a little bit different, and that's what makes this exciting. It's an opportunity for these two teams to to try some stuff, to experiment with their team, and really kind of get a sense of where they're at, what this team's going to look like. For the Zags, I can't think of anything better for this team to do than play a tough exhibition game because their non-conference slate is unforgiving. We've talked about it at length on this podcast, but it is always worth Revisiting On November 11th, the Gonzaga Bulldogs will take on the Michigan State Spartans on an aircraft carrier in San Diego. Five days later, they will take on the Texas Longhorns in Texas. Four days after that, on November 20th, they will take on the Kentucky Wildcats, John Calipari's team. Of course, that game at the Spokane Arena. Four days after that is the start of the PK-85, the Feast Week tournament in Portland for Phil Knight's birthday. That is going to include Portland State is the first game for the Zags, but their next two games should be very, very high-quality opponents. And then a week after that, they will play Baylor on December 2nd in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That is a murderous three-week stretch of basketball games for the Zags to tack on a likely not as competitive, not as intense game, but still a high-quality opponent, and the Tennessee Volunteers in the exhibition slate is fantastic. Uh, There's no—this is just nothing but victory. There's no controversy. There's no—this is just a a win for the Zags. It's a win for Rick Barnes' team. 
It's a partnership that has been fruitful for the Zags in the past. Mark Few and Rick Barnes are friends. They have collaborated multiple times before Gonzaga and Texas used to scrimmage together when Barnes was the coach there. Gonzaga and Tennessee have played each other a handful of times since Barnes has become the coach over there. Uh, The biggest, most notable recent example of that is for, for many of you, it's the most notable memory of Gonzaga, Tennessee. I know that's the case for me was the game in Phoenix in 2018, that ridiculous 2018, 2019 Gonzaga team with Brandon Clark and Rui Hachimura. Uh, that team unfortunately lost to Tennessee. The, some of you may remember this game. It was a struggle defensively towards the end of the game. Admiral Schofield absolutely went nuclear for the Volunteers. He finished with 30 points in that game, including the game-winning three uh, right over Rui Hachimura. Disappointing loss for the Zags. A very exciting game nonetheless. Punctuated by what I think is maybe one of my favorite defensive plays in Gonzaga history. There was a conversation about this on Twitter. Some people pointed out some some more impactful defensive plays. Josh Perkins against West Virginia. Jalen Suggs had a couple epic defensive plays in his one year at Gonzaga as well. But Brandon Clark had a block on a Grant Williams dunk attempt in that game that is just one of the most remarkable single individual athletic feats I have ever seen on a basketball court. His ability to get up in transition, block that shot cleanly without committing a foul. If you haven't watched this highlight or if you haven't watched it in a long time, if you haven't seen it since the day that it happened, highly recommend checking it out. It's one of the most fun defensive plays I've ever seen. Too bad we can't have Brandon Clark for this one. Rim protection, as we've talked about on this podcast a handful of times. Potentially a concern for the Zags heading into this upcoming season. Uh, at least if Tennessee does end up beating them or plays well against them, the Zags will have a solid grasp of what things they want to work on heading into the season. Again, this is this is a win-win situation. It's, it's no problem for the Zags if they play well. If they're really good players, look really good, then they get an opportunity to see, well, what does Ben Gregg look like? What does Braden Huff look like? What do some of these guys look like in these situations? If some of their really good players struggle or some of the guys that they... You know, I don't know exactly how Mark Few's guard rotation is going to shake out. It's a, a topic of a lot of consternation, a lot of controversy, a lot of conversation has been had about what this guard rotation is going to look like. There's a good chance that Mark Few is still trying to figure some of that stuff out as well. When he lands on a decision on October 27th, he can put that decision into play in that game against Tennessee, if things don't go well, if there's things that he sees that he's like, oh, you know, maybe this lineup would benefit if we played Salas here instead of here, or maybe we shouldn't play this player with this player, whatever it may be. Exhibition games are always really good for providing that. But you probably don't need me to explain why an exhibition game against Tennessee versus Eastern Oregon is more likely to give you the information, useful information that you want. Ben Gregg, Caden Perry, excellent basketball players, not trying to say anything negative about them at all, but they're going to look outstanding against Lewis Clark State or Eastern Oregon. They may not necessarily look outstanding against Tennessee. That's good information to have when you're looking at what are the players we want to rely on if we have foul trouble, who are the players we need to go to in certain situations, like can we rely on Ben to do this, can we rely on Caden to come in and do this, and you're not necessarily going to be able to tell that in an exhibition game or an early season game against some of the opponents that Gonzaga has played in the past. But you are against Tennessee. You're going to get a better sense of what that might look like. Tennessee's a team you face in the NCAA tournament. You know, Eastern Oregon, Lewis Clark State, they're not. So this is a good avenue for the Zags to 
Marfu's not messing around. He's not messing around this year. He's ready to go. He's ready to go out there. He wants to win himself a dang national championship like he does every year. But this year he's out there. He's putting together the toughest schedule that he can. He's challenging this team right out of the shoots. They got some gelling to do, a lot of new pieces, a lot of returners as well. A great opportunity for this team to come out and have an outstanding season. And starting it out with the scrimmage game against Tennessee is nothing but good news for the Zags. All right, we're going to come back in the second segment, and we're going to talk about Drew Timmy. We're going to talk about recent comments that he made to John Fanta of Fox Sports. They talked about NIL. They talked about how much money he's going to make coming back to college, what that means for college hoops in general. But before we get there, I want to tell you all about Underdog. This episode is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to spice up college basketball season. It's crazy easy to sign up and get started, and each game can be a different bet or pick'em choice for your favorite Gonzaga stars. Think Drew Timmy will score more than 18 points against Chris Beard and the Texas Longhorns? Go to the Upside app and drop your bet. Easy money. Bet Timmy and one to four other players, Gonzaga or not, and you can win cold hard cash. Sign up with the promo code Locked On one word, and Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. So deposit $100, get $100 free. Go to underdogfantasy.com or find the Underdog Fantasy app in the App Store or Google Play Store. That's Underdog Fantasy, promo code Locked On. Get in on the college football and college basketball pick'em action today. All right, segment two, still in patent, still Locked On Zags. Still want to thank all of you for making Locked On Zags your first listen of the day. Want to remind you all, we are live on YouTube as well. Trying to get to 1,000 subscribers before that November 7th game against North Florida. Heck, would be happy to get to 1,000 subscribers before this new exhibition game against Tennessee on the 28th. If you are listening to this and you haven't done so yet, go to YouTube, search Locked on Zags. You'll see that big red subscribe button. Hit it and you are good to go. You'll see all of our content in video form organized based on playlists. So it's a great, great, great resource for Gonzaga fans. Check it out if you haven't already. Here in segment two, I want to talk about Drew Timmy. I want to talk about some recent quotes that he had. We haven't heard him be particularly vocal with the press since he decided to come back to Gonzaga. Of course, there haven't been very many opportunities for press since then, so we just haven't really gotten a sense. He's talked a handful of times. He talked to Brenna Green at KREM before uh, she departed to Coin 6 News here in Portland. Uh, but he, she talked to him a, a little bit, and he kind of talked about how tough of a decision it was and deciding to come back to school versus going pro, all of that. But recently, Drew Timmy spoke again, this time to John Fanta of Fox Sports 1, former guest of the podcast, also play-by-play announcer for the Big East Conference, outstanding college basketball mind. They had a wonderful conversation. Drew is fantastic as always, told some excellent stories about his interactions with Mark Few, about some of his favorite players growing up, all sorts of excellent stuff. It's, it's genuinely fantastic. Check out the article if you haven't done so yet. The biggest thing that he talked about, though, and what I really want to talk about here in the second segment was that he admitted that he, he did some calculations. He did the math. And he ultimately came to the conclusion that he's going to make more money back at Gonzaga through NIL deals than he would have made in the NBA. Of course, this is speculation on his part. He's guessing. He's assuming based on what he knows about where he would have gone in the NBA draft or whether he would have been selected in the NBA draft, what those contracts would have looked like, and of course, how much money he's going to make here in NIL. He did not release any fi- any figures, excuse me, on, on how much money he's making 
nor should he, nor does he have to. I wouldn't disclose that information if I was him. I do not blame him for not discussing that. But he was candid enough to admit, yeah, this is this is a better decision for me financially. I did not just make this decision based on, you know, wanting to come back to college and not wanting to play professional or whatever it may be. I made this decision in part because of finances. And I think that that's a significant, it's a significant thing. A lot of people have kind of said, well, of course, that's the case or blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's still significant. It's still significant that Drew Timmy admitted publicly, I'm going to make more money playing college basketball than I probably would have made in the NBA. I think that this is, I think that it's important that players are willing to admit that. Because I could see a lot of pride. I could see a lot of reasons why players, it's uncomfortable talking about money. And certainly, again, Drew not releasing straight financial information, I understand. But I can see why players might not want to necessarily talk about it. It's really brand new. There's some some anxiety about it. There's also some people who who just kind of don't like that college athletes get paid. And, and talking about it could could rub some people the wrong way. But I think ultimately, for the game of college basketball, seeing high-profile superstars in the game return is good news. This is not going to change. Somebody in the comments on Twitter said like, well, this Paolo Bancaro should still go to the NBA. Like, yeah, we're not talking about like super high end one and done type talent. Like some guys, most guys who are NBA caliber players are still going to go to the NBA. They should still go to the NBA. That should still be how this works. But there's a subset of players and it's a pretty specific player archetype. There's a subset of players that it makes more sense, not just from a where from a talent perspective, from a notoriety perspective, fame perspective, but from a straight up financial perspective. Now, because Drew has confirmed this and Oscar Shubway has confirmed this, we know that it makes more sense for these guys, not just in terms of their image and their career, but from a for their pockets, for their wallets. It makes sense for them to return to school. And I think that that's fantastic. I talked about the player archetype. It's pretty darn easy to look at the best returning players in college basketball and see what this kind of player looks like. John Rothstein released his preseason All-American team. Here are the five players that were on John Rothstein's list. Drew Timmy, of course, we already discussed him. Oscar Shubway at Kentucky, we already discussed him. The other three North Carolinas, Armando Baycott, Michigan's Hunter Dickinson, and Indiana's Trace Jackson Davis. For those of you who are college basketball junkies, you will note that all of those players are six foot nine or taller. All of those players are very, very talented, low post scorers, very, very talented rebounders. All of those players are questionable outside shooters. In fact, they're all just pretty bad at it. None of them have been consistently good three-point shooters. Some of them, they haven't taken very many opportunities. Some of them are better mid-range scorers, but not great three-point shooters. But all of them have legitimate questions about their ability to knock down three-point shots. Beyond that, all of these players also have questions about their ability to impact the game on the defensive end of the floor. Some of them are better rim protectors than others, but all of these guys have some level of questions about can they be pick-and-roll defensive players? Are they going to get victimized if they have to switch off of and guard guards at the NBA level? No big man is... Most big men struggle with that at some level. It's hard. That's why the pick-and-roll is still such an effective offensive tool in the NBA. But these players in particular, there's some concern that that might not be something that they're particularly great at at the next level. And in the modern NBA, if you are if you struggle to defend away from the rim and you struggle to score away from the rim... If you struggle to do both those things, your ability to be more than a fringe NBA player is somewhat limited. It's somewhat limited. 
and all five of these guys because the college basketball game has a wider lane. The college basketball game has a longer shot clock. The college basketball game has not as many guys who are huge and strong. Like there are, everybody in the NBA is huge. Everybody in the NBA is really, really strong. In college, there are less guys like that. There is more room to operate. There is less consistent outside shooting from every player on the roster. So it makes sense for teams to try to funnel their offense down low. All of that leads to these players who are just dominant. In co- All these guys are dominant. Look at the numbers that they've put up. Look at the projections for what they're going to do this upcoming season. These dudes are really freaking good. There's a reason that not just John Rothstein has them on his preseason list, but if you look at most lists, this is going to be the five guys that are on there. You might see Marcus Sasser from Houston. He's kind of an anomaly as a, as a guard who kind of fits into that. He doesn't fit into that mold, but doesn't necessarily have an NBA game. We'll see what happens with him. But there's this archetype. There's this group of guys that fit this bill. And now these guys not only come back to college as legitimate superstars, as icons, as players who are going to change the direction of their school in many capacities, but they also get to pay. They get to make money. They get paid. And they get paid comparably to what they get paid in the NBA. I don't know whether Drew Timmy was making this assumption based on what other second round picks get paid, what two-way contract guys get paid, what undrafted... I, I don't know exactly what the figures were, what the numbers were, what they are currently for him. I don't know whether he was having conversations with guys like Luca Garza or Kofi Coburn or other players who are similar to him who are in the NBA now. But the, the fact is he thought or determined this is going to be more lucrative for me. And I think that that's huge. I think that that's a significant fact. And he, it's not him. It's not just him. Oscar Shubay very famously is making a lot of money off NIL. He has been, he has not been afraid to talk about that, to share what he, you know, he's helping his family, supporting his family by doing this. He's able to return to school, continue to play at a high level at Kentucky, try to win a national championship, and he can support his family. That is very, very significant. Trace Jackson Davis just signed a contract or signed a NIL deal with a very prominent bank in Indiana. We know that Armando Baycott, Hunter Dickinson, they have, if you Google their name at NIL, there's all sorts of stuff that pops up. Both those guys, really high profile, blue blood programs, superstars on those teams. Of course, they're doing just fine financially as well. It's an interesting thing to kind of see how this is going to impact college basketball, because there's a recent report that the NBA and the NBA Players Association are considering alterations to the rules that would allow players to go straight from high school to the NBA. This is probably overdue. It's probably something that should have happened a long time ago. Players being forced to play college or forced to play one year of not high school basketball before going to the NBA was always a little bit silly. I understand why the rule was put in place initially, but I think that more freedom for players to make the decisions that they want to make probably makes some sense, but it's going to cost college basketball some superstars. Not a ton, not as many as people think. I don't think we're going to see the 40 best high school players declare for the NBA draft, or certainly I hope that that's not the case because that's going to cause a lot of guys to have disappointing careers. But five, six, maybe 10, maybe even more than 10 of the best high school basketball players choosing to go straight to the pros is going to hamper the college game star power. You're going to have, you know, you're not going to have your Palo Bancaros. You're not going to have your Chet Holmgrens. You're not going to have your Jalen Suggses. But... The flip side of that is guys like Drew Timmy, guys like Oscar Shubway, guys like Armando Baycott coming back to college, playing more in college, developing their game. Yeah, they may not, you know, Drew Timmy may not improve his draft stock much this year. None of those guys are necessarily going to, they might, I don't want to say never, they, they absolutely could, but that's not necessarily the driving factor for why they're returning to school. 
you know, Hunter Salas returned to school mostly to get better on the basketball court, to put up better statistics, to increase his draft stock. But that's not necessarily why these other guys are returning to school. That's not necessarily why Drew Timmy, Armando Baycott, Oscar Shubway are coming back to school. Certainly they want to get better. I'm not trying to claim that they're not trying to get better at basketball, but they're not necessarily improving their draft stock. They're making a lot of money. They're being famous effectively for another year and then moving on to that next stage, whatever it may be. This is not only good news for college basketball, but I think this is really good news for Gonzaga specifically. No program in college basketball has developed bigs better than Gonzaga over the last 10 years. Nobody. Nobody. Kelly Olynyk. Look at Brandon Clark. Look at Shemek Karnowski. Look at Drew Timmy, of course. Great example of it. Anybody. There have been so many fantastic bigs. Some of them have developed over a shorter period of time, like Kelly in a one-year sit-out. Brandon Clark in a one-year sit-out year. Some of them have developed a little bit more gradually. Shemek Karnowski is a good example of that. But they have developed bigs extraordinarily well. And if these bigs are more likely to stay in college, more likely to hone their craft, get these really high usage rates that they always get at Gonzaga and work on their game that way, that's great for the Zags. They might have the next, you know, Drew Timmy, quote unquote, on their roster. It could be Efton Reed. Maybe Efton Reed's a guy who's going to have a really, really good development and be awesome in a couple of years. Maybe he still sticks around after that because he has more of an ability to earn more money, to to be more famous uh, while staying at Gonzaga. Maybe Braden Huff is next on that list. Of course, Huff's more of an outside shooter, so I'm not sure if some of these, he's not going to necessarily fit that same archetype, but you never know. And with Gonzaga, their ability to develop bigs and now the likelihood that more of these guys are going to be willing to stay in school longer, it's hard not to see how that's a really, really good thing for Mark Few and his program. All right, folks, we're going to come back in the third and final segment of today's show. We're going to handful a couple miscellaneous Zags pieces of news, one about Aaron Cook, former Gonzaga point guard, one about Chet Holmgren, right after this. Segment three, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zach's closing out the week and the month of September with a few miscellaneous pieces of Gonzaga news. First up, Aaron Cook, former Gonzaga point guard, grad transfer on that 2020-2021 squad. He has signed his first professional contract. He is signing with Enosis, Neon, Paralimni. They are a team in Cyprus. Uh, EuroLeague squad. This is fantastic news for Cook. Obviously, you always like to see former Zags succeed. I know that the discourse around Aaron Cook has been a little bit interesting because he came to Gonzaga as a grad transfer from Southern Illinois. He, I think, expected to, not I think, I know that he expected to play more than he did in his lone season in Spokane, of course. Part of the reason that the things happened the way that they did is that I think three days before the start of that season, Andrew Nembhard was received eligibility. He had transferred to Gonzaga from Florida. He was expected to sit out the entire year, take over after Jalen Suggs' this one-and-done season was over. Instead, Nembhard got that eligibility. Gonzaga was able to run those very, very dynamic two-point guard lineups, and they carried that all the way to a national championship appearance. It was a phenomenal season for the Zags, one of the greatest, the greatest in school history up to this point. But we saw Aaron Cook be a player who thought he was going to get some legitimate minutes as a backup point guard, maybe even you know contend for a starting spot the way that Nembhard did throughout the season. Instead, Cook only played about 13 minutes per night. Uh, he averaged four and a half points, just under two assists, about a steal per game. He was still great. There was a few games where Aaron Cook saved the Zags. 
He had a phenomenal performance against San Diego in the regular season where the Zags were just flat. They just came out flat. It happens. And Cook came in, immediately energized the team, had a big dunk, couple steals, brought the team back to life effectively. Would they have lost that game without him? I don't know. I don't know conclusively, but they sure as crap weren't playing well. <laughs> and, and Aaron Cook came in and saved the day. He came out. He had a great game. This is not the only time he did that. He did that a handful of times. And then after the season ended, you know, so many players had that extra year of COVID eligibility. Cook was among them. Most assumed that he was going to move on, similar to the situation Rasir Bolton was in last year. You grad transferred. Most people who grad transfer aren't really looking to play two years of college basketball. You would think, you would expect. But Aaron Cook decided, you know what? I do want to play another year of college basketball, but I don't want to do it here. And he entered the transfer portal and he ended up going to Georgia and starting at point guard for the SEC Georgia Bulldogs. That's where he spent his final year of collegiate eligibility. He was a really, really important piece for a not very good Georgia team last year. 32 minutes per game. So he went from a a star at Southern Illinois, although he got injured in his final season there, came to Gonzaga, was the third or fourth string guard, 13 minutes per night, still played a key role, don't get me wrong, he was important to what Gonzaga did, but then he transfers back out of Gonzaga, goes to the SEC, 32 minutes per night, 10.5 points, 5.5 assists, 1.5 steals per game, really, really key piece. I think... The narratives around Gonzaga have shifted to the point where there aren't that many people who still believe that the actual talent on Gonzaga's roster isn't as good. There are people who think that Gonzaga playing in the WCC is the reason they don't win championships and a lot of other relatively misguided beliefs. But thankfully, most people accept that Gonzaga actually has good players. The players are good. They're not. Their stats aren't only good because they play in the WCC. That would be a ludicrous assumption. I'm sure there are people out there who still have some outdated thoughts on Gonzaga, and that's fine. That's how that's how it works. But Aaron Cook being a guy who couldn't start for the Zags, couldn't play more than 15 minutes per night for the Zags, and he was a starting point guard on an SEC team. And admittedly not very good SEC team, but I would I would venture that Aaron Cook would have started for a whole lot of SEC teams last year, a whole lot of Power Five teams, quite a few of them. And the fact that he was he struggled to find playing time at Gonzaga during an admittedly, you know, loaded roster with the Zags don't typically have a Jalen Suggs and an Andrew Nampart on their roster at the same time. That's pretty unusual. But still, to see the amount of talent that comes through this program, to see a player like Aaron Cook be, I don't want to use the, the, the phrase afterthought because I don't think that that's an accurate description of who Aaron Cook is or was on a Gonzaga roster, but to see the impact he had at other programs and to see how small re- relatively his impact was at Gonzaga is certainly an interesting dyna- dynamic and I think kind of shows the level of player that is coming through Mark Few's program on a day-to-day basis. Last thing I want to talk about before we close out the month of September, one month closer to the actual start of Gonzaga basketball. We got craziness and we got that exhibition game against Tennessee, both coming up in October. Very, very exciting to see the calendar switch over. Last thing I want to talk about is Chet Holmgren. Chet Holmgren spoke to media for the first time since he had Liz Frank surgery on his foot. He's going to keep him out for his entire rookie season for the Oklahoma City Thunder. This was Really big story a few weeks ago, unfortunately. He suffered the injury during the Jamal Crawford crossover pro-am event at Seattle Pacific University in Seattle. Uh, Playing against LeBron James, he was actually defending LeBron James when he suffered the injury. Very, very unfortunate timing on that, of course. The fact that it happened to Holmgren, a very divisive player, a polarizing player, a very well-known player. 
really caused a lot of controversy, a lot of conversation, a lot of negativity, because that's what tends to come with social media and divisive players like Chet Holmgren. Uh, and he spoke out. He talked about it. He, he was asked about it during his media appearance for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, I'm going to read exactly what he said, because I thought it was a really nice, nuanced, intelligent quote. So I'm just going to read right here. He said, there's freedom of speech and criticism comes along with anything. Basketball players are going to play basketball. You have to feed the love of the game. I don't want an injury like this to take away from that. I think that's a great quote. I think it's a mature quote from Chet Holmgren. And I think it speaks to what a lot of players, a lot of media, a lot of people who have discussed this issue, this conversation around pro-am events is effectively, you can't tell basketball players to not play basketball. It doesn't make any sense for them to not, they have to play basketball. Yes, of course, the drills are important and, you know, the, the just conditioning, lifting weights, working out, all that stuff is, is critical. It's, it's paramount to being successful in the NBA. But you got to play. You got to play. And sometimes you got to play hard. You can't have, you can't spend your entire offseason never playing higher than 75% and expect to go into the regular season and just start playing 100%. You just can't do it. I don't think, I'm pretty sure, watching the the parts that we did, that Chet Holmgren and Paolo Bancaro and LeBron James and uh, you know, Trey Young and everybody else who was participating in these events, they were not playing 100%. They weren't. They shouldn't have been, and they were not. Chet Holmgren's injury was a freak accident. It was not because he was playing too hard. It was not because his of his frame or anything like that. It was just a freak accident. It was unfortunate because it happened on a court where there was some slippery floor conditions and some some things happened that may have kind of challenged the integrity of the event, but it wasn't Jamal Crawford's fault. I've said that on this podcast and I will continue to defend him because I do not think that him putting on this extremely cool event in the city of Seattle to generate interest in basketball should be something that anybody is criticizing. Uh, it was not Chet Holmgren's fault. He was trying to make a defensive play on LeBron James. And I will point out succeeded in the sense that he did strip the ball from LeBron on that play. LeBron got it back and scored, but Still very cool to see Chet Holmgren make a nice defensive play on LeBron, even if the result was obviously the most catastrophic thing that could have happened, which was a season-ending injury for Chet. I think this is a nice, nuanced response from Chet about this incident. I think him saying, I love the phrase, you have to feed the love of the game, because I think that that's a great way to describe it. Like, you have to, you're hungry to play basketball. That That's what Chet's entire life has been about. That's what every NBA player's entire life has been around. You're going to tell him he can't participate in a scrimmage game against LeBron James in Seattle at an event he did last year? Like, of course he's going to do that. It sucks what happened. I mean, it really sucks what happens. I think about him. I think about his family. I think about how everything led to this. And for him to not be able to play in his first season in the NBA is just, just so unfortunate. There's no other way to look at it. It really is. But him having the measured response that he did, talking about how much he loves basketball, he doesn't want an injury to take away from these kind of events. I think that shows a level of maturity that we have come to expect from him as as Gonzaga fans, having seen the way he treated the media, the way he talked to other players, the way he always brought other players into those post-game conversations with media because he wanted them to get highlighted as well, I think speaks a lot to who he is as a character, who he is as a person. And while it's a bummer that we don't get to see who he is as a basketball player for another year, uh, he showed us once again what kind of person he is. And I am proud that he's a Zag, and I'm excited to see what his NBA career looks like when it gets started officially next season. All right, that is going to do it for me today and for this week and for this month. 
The three weeks, three podcasts per week time for the Locked On Zags podcast is officially over. Starting October 3rd, you will get five podcasts per week once again as we ramp up for the start of the college basketball season. I'm thrilled. I'm excited. we got a couple fun guests coming on next week, all right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Available on YouTube as well. Finally, thank you again to those of you who have made Locked On Zags your first listen of the day. Locked On WCC doesn't exist yet. But you can get more informed on the West Coast happenings by making Locked On Pac-12 your second listen of the day. Host Spencer McLaughlin and the local experts of Locked On take you across the Pac-12 in 30 minutes, five times per week. All right, thank you all for listening, and go Zags.